Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. I mean, if somebody writes a book called Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, I'm going to read the book and I'm going to have them on the Sidewalk Talk podcast. But here's the thing. I learned about Michelle Gelfland through a colleague on LinkedIn. And then I read her stuff. And I got to admit that I'm kind of into people that are social psychologists and anthropologists and philosophers, people that are sort of outside the, the realm of psychotherapy but that I can geek out with and learn with. And so you get to come along for the ride with me as I learn from somebody who is really a teacher. She's like Brene Brown, you know? Like when you listen to this conversation, you can tell that Dr. Michelle Gelflin, I should say, loves to teach. Because even the way she talks to me, she gets so excited and she inspires and encourages my thinking. And we had some really weird conversations about the culture of cleaning house that I think you guys will be really interested in. So I can't wait to have you meet her. Uh, and I should say that when I first interviewed her, she was a professor at the University of Maryland College Park, but she's now a professor at Stanford. So in my neck of the woods, and we had to delay the interview because she was in the process of moving. So I'm really excited for you to meet Michelle. And there's something very sweet where she paid homage to her teachers, um, which really touches me. It just really touches me. What a great human. All right, Michelle Gelfland. So Michelle Gelfand. So how many, how many times have we rescheduled this call? Um, probably, I think it was like five. And the reason why is because you're an East Coaster that just moved to the West Coast in the United States. That's and, right. And I'm a New Yorker and I'm now in your very familiar territory. You're in the, the, the land of the phony smiles and aren't we all just best friends? Versus <laughs> what I love about New York, which is I actually feel safer in New York because people just tell you exactly what's going on for them. That's right. Very direct culture. I've been in DC for 25 years and it's very oh, similar. I, I lived in DC. I don't like yeah. DC. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Everyone, one of my closest girlfriends is in DC, but I don't like DC. Yeah. We, uh, we, I mean, I just think it's a fabulous city too, but I'm really excited to be here in California. And, you know, it was 25 years I was in DC and now we're out uh, in Stanford in uh, Palo Alto. And I know you're from the Bay area, so I'm going to have to get some cultural pointers from you. Okay. Well, so for everyone listening, the reason why I'm picking on Michelle about this move is because she is the, the, the chief mama rabbit. I usually say chief daddy rabbit. She's the chief mama rabbit when it comes to studying culture. But I, I, I'm learning from you that I had this assumption about you that you were kind of more of a tight culture gal, but you're actually, I think, more loose culture gal. Yeah. You know, um, everyone, I'll just sort of say that, you know, we all have our differences in terms of, you know, how much we care about structure and order, 
versus are much more flexible and we like a lot of freedom. Uh, and actually Dahlia Litwick discussed this as the order versus chaos Muppets. <laughs> so you can think about your audience, like, are you like Kermit the Frog and you know, Bert, or are you more like Cookie Monster and Animal? You know, I'm like and, Animal. <laughs> and, I, and on my website, which is at michellegelfin.com, um, there's a tight loose mindset quiz that people okay. can take. And, you know, really um, neither is good or bad, but we each have our own default on the tight loose mindset continuum in terms mm -hmm. of how much we love structure and crave order versus we like a lot of latitude. Um, and you can kind of learn where you fall on the continuum and start thinking about why is it that you might have evolved to be the way you are, like your own cultural background, your history. And we, we do a lot of research on this construct of tight loose. Actually, it's something that Herodotus, the, the famous uh, historian, talked about you know, centuries ago. Uh, he didn't use those terms, but it's something that we as cultural psychologists have now started to learn a lot about. And we can understand why cultures like nations vary in general on tight loose, why people vary, why households, organizations, and so forth, and, and what the trade-offs are and how you kind of negotiate them. So that's what we do 24-7, uh, yeah. and we, we have a real good time studying this stuff. You know, I got to say, before I read your latest book about tight and loose cultures, I was very judgmental of tight cultures. And I think the impetus for why I picked up the book is I was trying to make sense of how I was not only a Californian from the United States, but a wildly rebellious overly gregarious, super charismatic, loudmouth Californian moving to Germany <laughs> and feeling kind of lonely and left out. And like, oh, I don't feel like I, I belong. I found a subculture in Germany. I find a, a subculture of expats, not all from the US, mm -hmm. but people that decide to leave their country of origin are adventurers. Mm -hmm. And I Overstated. found my people. I'm like, whoa, yeah. you guys are, you guys like, like I just, I, my new favorite person is from Turkey, which to me is a tight culture, but Probably she's escaping left. from tightness. Yeah. But she's, but she's not tight. She's like wild like me. I'm like, Oh, this is crazy. So mm -hmm. I'm really interested in learning from you what you have to offer to help our society move forward so that they're, that we're not doing what I was doing, which is judging people for how they've been shaped and yeah. what you've learned, you know, yeah, I'm just I mean, I, with you. Well, you know, <laughs> it's great to connect. And I really would love to hear from your audience too, any stories they have around tight, loose conflicts they've had in any kind of context. And I'll just sort of say, broadly speaking, culture is this really fascinating puzzle because it's all around us. It's omnipresent all the time, 24 seven, but we totally take it for granted. Like we don't think about how we've been programmed, so to speak, from a very early age, um, to have a certain set of values and norms uh, and why they make sense in certain contexts. And so a lot of what we do as cross-cultural psychologists is try to understand why the cultures develop the way they do uh, and how do we make it more kind of visible and, 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 not, and help people not take it for granted. Because like when you left and went to Germany, I would imagine, or, or in fact, when expats leave in general, in, in general, they tend to go because their spouses are leaving or their uh, companies are sending them abroad. And those places are not necessarily thinking about culture. They're not thinking like, are these people culturally intelligent? Do they understand culture and its evolution? They're sent because they're technically competent, they're super intelligent, maybe even they're emotionally intelligent, but those constructs of intelligence are very different than cultural intelligence is your knowledge of other cultures and why they have differences. And so, you know, I, I feel like you were, you went abroad and, you know, you were kind of left to your own devices to figure this stuff out. And, and that's the, for the vast majority of people, including myself. The reason I got interested in this 
field. I was pre-med as an as a undergrad at Colgate. I'm a New Yorker. I had a classic New Yorker view of the world, which is basically New York centric, you know, the New Yorker cartoon. And I got to London and I was like totally blown away. I was totally freaked out and so much culture shock. And I called my father, Marty from Brooklyn. And I said, you know, it's so weird, you know, that people going from London to Paris or London to Amsterdam for the weekend. And my dad in his Brooklyn accent said, well, it's like going from New York to Pennsylvania. And I'm like, holy moly, dad, that's a great metaphor. And this is a true story. And the next day I, I booked a trip, a low budget trip to Egypt. I'm like, well, dad, it's like going from New York to California. Don't worry about it. He's like, what? Like, he's like, I didn't anticipate you're going to take this metaphor and run with it, so to speak. Anyway, it was really there in Egypt. And then later on working on a kibbutz and traveling around that I realized how powerful culture is as a force and how little I know about it. And therefore, how little I know about myself. You know, what's fun is that I'm not a graduate student. I'm not at the university. I'm not at Maryland in Maryland and I'm not at Stanford. Can we just define for everyone what culture is can start there. sure yeah I want, to, I want to ask the like novice questions oh yeah of that. course I mean so much that we take for granted I mean it's really basically speaking like the kinds of underlying values norms standards for behavior and assumptions that we make about the world and how they become transmitted across generations like our parents are good prime socializers of a culture they want to help their kids to fit into the dominant norms and values that exist in that particular context and I've been trying to understand, like, how do you define those kind of the dimensions on which nations vary? You know, just like we vary at the personality level in terms of introversion or extroversion, like how can we kind of map the world, so to speak, on the underlying ways in which nations and other groups vary um, psychologically? And that's the field of cross-cultural psych. Um, when I went to Illinois um, to work with Harry Triandis, um, you know, he, I, I was planning to work at the State Department. I wanted to train all these knuckleheads how to negotiate culture and how to understand culture. Because I was really looking at like what's going on and thinking like if the highest level of like, you know, negotiators are not trained in cross-cultural psych or other at, you know, international relations and so forth, you know, maybe we have a problem here. Anyway, Harry convinced me to become an academic. Uh, and his training was even further beyond just describing cultural differences, like I was just mentioning. He wanted to find out like, why do they evolve in the first place? And so one of the discoveries we had on tight loose, um, if I could just toss it out now, is that um, we studied this across 30 plus nations. And one of the kind of ideas I had was that maybe it's the case that cultures evolved to be tight, have strict norms and punishments compared to loose, have weaker norms and be more permissive. Maybe it makes sense. Maybe cultures that are tight have had a lot of collective threat throughout their histories. So for example, think about Japan, that's in our data is really pretty tight. They've had a lot of national, natural disasters, uh, resource scarcity, a lot of conflict. And it's really a basic, really kind of simple idea. When you have a lot of collective threat, you need stricter rules to coordinate as humans. Like you can't solve that problem on your own. So you need strict rules to help coordinate. And if you're continually, you know, uh, dealing with mother nature's fury and human nature's conflict, over centuries, you would learn that rules make a difference, that they might help you out. <laughs> Whereas if you live in a context that has less threat, in general, all cultures have threat, but generally you live in a context that doesn't have chronic national threat. Like the US has been separated by oceans from other continents. We're not worried about Mexico and Canada invading us. Most of us don't worry about that. My daughter asked me that when she was five and I'm like, no, we're not worried about that. You know, and in those cases, you can afford to be more permissive. And that's what we set out to study. And that's what we've been looking at. And of course, not all cultures that are tight have threat and likewise loose cultures are not all on easy street, but we've been interested in how can we quantify this difference? How can we study it? 
not just at nations, but in organizations and households. And even like you said, like you veer looser, like, and I don't know about your husband, but my husband definitely veers tighter than me. He's a lawyer and he gets so irritated with me how I load the dishwasher. That's my- I'm married to a German girl. I mean, he's totally tighter. (laughs) Okay, but I got to ask you, well, two things. I want to share with you my reaction, what you just said. You know, I just felt a twinge of empathy, actually, what you were starting to say about, look, you know, there's some reasons why people become tight or loose and there's a context you've got to consider. I'm like, wow. So maybe next time I want to be kind of curmudgeonly and judgmental about somebody that's where I want to say, come on, just have a good time. It's like, well, maybe there's some really good reasons why they're following rules or thinking about their impact on others in a more succinct way. So that was kind of cool. I guess the question I have is, while that's the impact on me, if you were to sort of think, okay, what's the impact I want to have on the world with my research? Like if I were to leave a legacy behind and make the world a better place, I know it's a big freaking question, but, but all this work that you've done for so many years, what's the impact you hope to leave behind? Yeah, it's such an incredibly interesting question. I think, you know, for, you know, I have to say, I have to back up and say, I've been stuck in the ivory tower, like, you know, trapped there for a long time. And Marty from Brooklyn, my dad said to me, I can't understand a word, what you say. I can't even understand a sentence that you write. And that's kind of motivated me to write a book for a general audience and get outside of that bubble. And I've really enjoyed that because, you know, fundamentally, I'm just so passionate about culture. And my goal is to help people to maybe see the world a little bit differently and to empathize to exactly your point, to empathize and understand the headlines a little bit better, to understand when, they ha- when they're meeting someone from a different culture, that to understand and empathize with them a little bit more um, and to think about, well, you know, if I were raised in that context, maybe I would be different. Maybe I would be tight. Maybe it's an accident that I was born in New York or you were born in California. What if I was born in Singapore? You know, maybe I would support a ban on having a lot of gum imported into the country, which from an American point of view sounds ridiculous. Like, why would you be allowed to bring gum into the country? You know, Singapore turns out to be like one of the most highly populated density contexts on the planet. It has like over 20,000 people per square mile, a lot of different groups, a lot of potential conflict. And, and Lee Kuan Yew, um, he has great, got a great autobiography. Um, he was the prime architect of Titans. It came right from the top down. And it has, as we can talk about, advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but in that context, you know, he said, hey, guys, you know, gum is really causing a big problem here. <laughs> it's like all over the place and we can't function. It's it's getting stuck in subways and it's stopping trains and elevators. And we're going to have to just ban this tasty treat. And it sounds from our point of view, ridiculous. <laughs> but I guess that's really the goal is to understand this omnipresent but invisible force and have some more empathy um, and, you know, to help be a force for good, for collective good um, by, by understanding culture, maybe just a little bit better. I just was, I've been actually interacting with a lot of people from Singapore recently. I have some new friends from Singapore and we we chat a lot. They're lovely, but we did talk about that. They said, well, you're American. You can kind of do these things. So I love that you said that. I want to go to a darker place because I do want to talk about current context. It feels like there's, so you know, my, I think I mentioned to you that my background was studying international relations in undergrad. I sold software in the Silicon Valley, and I also sold to the U.S. federal government. So I lived in D.C., and I sold to the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and DNI. These were my clients, right? The State Department I called on. And then I went yeah. back to graduate school and became a therapist. And one of the things that continues to confound me right now is 
how are we in America struggling? It seems like we're having a culture shift and there's so much tension between people around, well, how do we come together and how are we going to define this culture? And I get that there's outer forces at play and we've got social media and all that stuff. But I want to talk about about this from a cultural lens. Like, what's going on? Yeah, it's such an important question. And, you know, this has been a really, really difficult time uh, in the U.S. and in other contexts in terms of the increasing polarization. And I think when I think about it from a tight, loose perspective, it's like it's axis that kind of like is shifting, you know, in you know, of course, you can explain national variation in it um, and organizational variation, but you can also start thinking about how within countries, this is becoming an axis of difference between like cosmopolitan, urban types of places where there's a lot of looseness, a lot of diversity that pushes those contexts towards looseness, a lot of mobility that makes looseness make sense compared to, you know, kind of rural, um, more stable, low mobility types of contexts. And that's a really big Kind of divide right now, both in the U.S. It's clearly in um, in the U.K. Also, in part, you know, we, we see these dynamics explaining local elections and big decisions. Like, I mean, of course, they're multiply determined why these things are happening, but uh, there really is a big challenge in trying to understand each other. And you know, I've written a little bit about this. I mean, there's one issue is that we really need to understand that some groups are really feeling objectively threatened. Like, there is objective threat. United States in terms of those areas and the loss of manufacturing and so forth. And we have these, these fears and these threats that need to be really acknowledged and really dealt with at the societal level. Um, and in the book, I talk about Germany, you know, and Germany's much better with dealing with some of these threats because it's more organized and things are synchronized. Like you can help people from the working class, which in of itself has less stigma uh, from what I can tell from the outside than the US. So, you know, part of this is that, you know, when people feel threat, they're going to desire tightness, and so, and the leaders recognize that, and they might even amp up threats and even target people who are feeling threatened, like we saw uh, in my own country during the Trump yeah. era. So that's you know I think part of that is a, an opportunity to say you know we need to understand cultural dynamics that where people feel actual threat, like we need to help um, to kind of really address their deep seated threats. Now on the same hand, we also have these kind of mismatches where we have people who are just really trying to activate threat when it's not even there, you know, and blaming people, you know, like immigrants and, and others, that, that there's a lot of, that we're trying to understand um, it through research of how do you kind of help people become uh, aware that they're being the victim of fake threat, you know, and that causes artificial tightening. So there's all these kinds of mismatches that we've been studying um, and I could get more into that, but, you know, one of the things I just want to mention, one thing that we've been doing along the lines of like, how do you bring people together? Like that's your, expertise, you know, what, how do you get people to feel connected even when they really have these extreme stereotypes of each other? Uh, and we've been doing some work on that, oddly enough, using a really simple technique, which is by exposing people to their de- daily diaries. So, you know, people like to read other people's diaries. <laughs> you know, mean other people's daily diaries? Things. Yeah. So like, basically this is a study we just published and now we're about to use it in the context of the U.S. But we did this study where we wanted to help people in Pakistan and the United States to kind of be, feel more connected and not have such negative stereotypes about each other. And, and uh, you know, the, the fact is that they meet in the media. You know, Americans, when they think about Pakistanis, if they even know where that is, they have a very narrow slice of what they think about. They think about situations like mosques and they don't think about 
Pakistanis reading poetry or playing music or dancing. And Pakistanis, when we interviewed them, they thought Americans were like, not just loose, but ultra loose, like half naked all the time, you know, drinking beer for breakfast. You know, they didn't have the most positive stereotypes of us. And so what we did was we basically collected daily diaries from Pakistanis and Americans. And then we had for a week, we had people reading each other's diaries. They were actually either reading someone from their own country's diaries or someone from the other culture's diaries. And we didn't edit these diaries. So the Americans were still waking up with their girlfriends and living their loose, their, their loose life. Pakistanis were still, the diaries were clearly much tighter I mean, in terms of the constraint and monitoring. But the diversity of situations and the similarity of their lives was so clear to them as they were reading these diaries. They saw the differences, but they also saw what they never expected, which is the shared humanity, that we're anxious, that we're you know, doing some similar things, that we are actually having dinner with our parents and we're not half naked all the time and we're not in mosques all the time. It was astonishing to see a simple technique like that to help people feel less distant. That, that's what, that was our dependent measure, what we're trying to see. Do they see more similarity than they see difference? And we're trying now to see, does this technique help us to reduce polarization between Republicans, Democrats, maybe between natives uh, and immigrants? Um, so that's kind of our, you know, low level technique of, you know, diaries. In some ways, you it sort of lands us as birds of a feather a little bit, because after sitting on a public sidewalk for seven years, I've been changed because I am essentially peeking into people's diaries just out of their mouth. Because the kind of the cool thing when you're sitting on a public sidewalk in a large city is you're just an utter stranger to this person. So they'll unload a lot of secrets because they're like, I'm never going to see you again. <laughs> and they feel kind of relieved. But for you as the listener, when you listen to more and more and more stories, you know, whatever stereotype you might have had of that younger person, or I, I had a lot of stereotypes of tech bros. Um, and I'm like, oh, San Francisco tech bros are really... I mean, now I'm going to make another generalization, but the single largest story that I heard from young tech bros with the sweatshirts and their logo on, they're all lonely. They're really lonesome. Um, And they drink a lot (laughs) to deal with it. Um, And then also, I mean, I've been, I've had my ass called out on how many racial stereotypes I was making that were so limiting to me really getting close to somebody because I am like, I made this assumption about this person based on their race and I start and sit and listen to their story. I was completely wrong. Yeah. I mean, you're you're looking, you're, it's so interesting. We are two birds uh, similar in the sense that you're looking at oral diaries, you know, like you're like listening to life histories and, you know, that promotes such a expansion of how you see a person in terms of all the situations that they've been in. And those narratives are so powerful, as you know, uh, in terms of helping to activate empathy and to kind of put ourselves in people's shoes. Um, and so it is, it's really interesting to think about it's doing similar things. But to support your work, I think it has, I mean, in my, in my graduate school training, I did have to study culture. Granted, it's done better now because it was so long ago that I was in grad school. But I'm still grateful for my cross-cultural courses because even, you know, there's a story of, there was one young woman that sat on the sidewalk and she came from a Hispanic family. And I think if I hadn't known more about sort of the general themes, I mean, you still have to ask and confirm, is this the way your family kind of organizes itself? But she was choosing a career that she didn't want to be in out of loyalty to her family 
I knew to ask that question. Oh, are you choosing this because you're, you're wanting to please a parent? Yeah. Yes, she says. Um, and so I think that some of your work, it helps inform us so that we can maybe even ask these questions yeah. that help us lean in a little yeah. closer. Because I could have said something really stupid, like, why I, are you doing that? Just do whatever you want to do. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's so important that, you know, it once you have this knowledge, it helps you to connect with people better. Like that's, I think in, in a large way, like that cultural intelligence is critical for connection uh, because then you're really open-minded to people's lives and, and why they evolved the way they did. And it's really hard sometimes not to be judgmental. You know, it's very hard. Um, and to, but I think it, it's easier once you start thinking about things in terms of, well, what if I was in their shoes and I grew up in that context? Like, you know, we in the U.S., like, you know, individualism and doing your own thing is so part of the culture. And it's partly it's something that we've inherited because we have more wealth than other cultures. And so in contexts where there's not a lot of wealth, you need to have a strong support. You need to kind of help out the family. Like, it's just absolutely necessary. I'm preparing for a TED talk. And it's so funny because some of the data I'm pulling from is about how mental health changes across the globe look differently. And it's actually the wealthier countries that are faring the worst post-pandemic because their communal support responses are the worst. So I love that you just said that. I've just been fascinated by this data. I'm like, oh, Yeah, there's this big misunderstanding that like individualism and doing your own thing is like somehow better than being in collectivistic kind of contexts. And I think the key is to think about the trade-offs, you know, that each culture has its strengths and its liabilities, depending on your, your vantage point. And I talk about this a lot in the book because, you know, the same advantages that tight cultures bring for humans, like order and efficiency and coordination um, and self-control, like there's less debt and there's less alcoholism. <laughs> there's uh, you know, less obesity in in, uh, in tighter cultures. Uh, actually, my friend, my colleague who's from Germany, always we make this funny joke that he's like, your dog is so fat and you've got this American fat dog and my German dog. I mean, this is a stereotype, but someday, maybe you can have me back on, on your podcast again after I do this study. I'm going to study culture and dogs. Because, you know, I think that dogs- well, I think that would be on, genius, actually. <laughs> they take on their cultural characteristics, like the New Yorker article. But, you know, and I, I just want to mention that, you know, loose cultures struggle with order a lot. Like they have a lot more self-regulation failures. They have a lot of obesity, debt, and, and alcohol problems. They're less, they're less coordinated, as you saw during COVID. Like our data suggests, loose cultures did far worse during COVID. Um, but loose cultures are really open and creative and tolerant. Tight cultures really struggle with tolerance um, and with creativity because when you're trained to think in a certain way, it's hard to think outside of the box. And so the same strengths that one culture has could be the liabilities of others. And it's trying to, one of the, some of the stuff we're doing now is trying to figure out how do you kind of maximize order and openness, tight and loose? Like how can we actually build a culture uh, mindfully and harness the power of culture in, rather than just being kind of passive recipients of it? And not thinking about it. So, you know, that's kind of a long story on, you know, kind of tight loose ambidexterity, we call it. I, I don't know. I just love that you, I just want to highlight and sort of slow down here because I love what you just said, I, that there are trade-offs. And I think that's right. Because I think even in my own bubble, I can over-idealize the looseness. But now I actually, so I've been picking on German culture, but I, I've never been prouder of a community. Yes, we have people that are not super thrilled with some of the ways the country, but it's much a smaller percentage of people than in the United yeah. States. 
overall, there is a real sort of consensus that this is how we need to respond. Yep. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to get it done. Yeah. Um, you know, there was for some negotiation problems and getting the vaccine into yeah. our country because they, they were shipping it out, which I think is also the right thing to do. But I, I can see the trade-offs yeah. and I think that's right. I think that we can too easily vilify the other, which actually makes me want to go in another direction because, and I know this is going to be kind of weird for the podcast people, but the context is so, I, so a lot's happening in the Middle East. And I know this is one of your areas of specialty. I think it'd be behoove us out of reverence to the people in Afghanistan, not that that was one of the countries you studied, but you studied countries in the Middle East to not objectify Middle Eastern culture. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's so easy to see all of this stuff on the news, right? And I think it's really important to be more open. Yeah. And so can you teach us just a little something, maybe some misconceptions that Americans have about folks from the Middle East, not that you can be the spokesperson for all Middle Eastern folks. So I don't want to put you on that spot, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's similar to what I was mentioning earlier. Like once you really zoom in and understand people's lives and all its diversity and all its, in all its, the situations people face, you'll start realizing like, wow, well, I'm really stereotyping that context. And there's a grain of truth to stereotypes. Um, but I also think um, it's really important to understand the psychology of the Middle East because you know, when we want to negotiate, if you want to just like go out and negotiate in the Middle East, um, Americans in general, you know, we, we're in a context where we have strong institutions, we have a lot of mobility, we like to cut to the chase, we like to get to yes, we're really open and we express our opinions and, you know, and we have a clock ticking, you know, we're sort of like in a rush. <laughs> and, you know, when you really start to really understand the culture and why um, that doesn't work in a context where there's weak institutions, where there's a lot less mobility. People are, I mean, you go to Jordan where I spend a lot of time and it's like the same people in the same restaurants, same hotels, like the staff, like doesn't change much. <laughs> and you start realizing like you're really negotiating something totally different. You're negotiating over respect and honor in a context where that's a very prized resource. When a context where you don't have strong institutions and you know, you need to kind of protect your honor and your reputation. And so you know, a lot of times we misunderstand, like, what are we negotiating here? Americans get on the ground, they're trying to negotiate to yes and get to the task. And a lot of our research would suggest that, no, the first and foremost, and you can relate to this, this is what you do on Sidewalk, is like, no, you need to first just signal that you respect and honor this person. You need to give respect. And unfortunately, a lot of times we, we steal people's honor. Like, there's a way we can, you know, basically gain and uh, lose honor quickly um, in the Middle East, even do small things. Like, for example, if I'm on my phone and talking to my colleague, that's kind of an honor violation because I'm signaling that like, this is more important to me than talking to you. If I'm not formally dressed, you know, in a lot of contexts, not all, Americans like to be really casual. Like that signal, like, I don't respect you enough to get myself dressed up. There's so many ways that we've been studying, like how honor violations can occur. So such small little things that we don't even realize, even with the greatest intentions we go to the region and we are using our own values and norms as we negotiate. And I'm trying to now work on a whole new model of how do you negotiate through an honor lens? Like, what does that look like? Uh, and why does it make sense? And actually, you know, once you get in that frame of mind and, and you kind of negotiate honor, then you can get to the task and you can get, you can be really successful. <laughs> uh, no question around it. And as you know, in the region, there's a lot of, you know, WASTA, a lot of connections, they call it, 
like in China, they call it Guanxi. Like you need to kind of navigate the social networks. And first and foremost, that's your task is to, is to really demonstrate you're an honorable person and that you respect and honor the person that you're, you're dealing with. Because in cultures where there's, again, like a lot of, um, there's not a lot of strong institutions, you know, meaning like the police and, and so forth that you, you know, you need to defend that honor very, you gotta be really vigilant. It's like you're thinking about it all the time because it can be stolen very easily. And so that's just a long-winded discussion of like negotiation. I love that though. And actually we have a, a listening training called HEAR and the first it's, it's an acronym it stands for honor, embodiment, assumptions, assumptions check and receive and respond. I love it. Trying to go beyond just the repeating back stuff and the you know, validating. We're trying to go a little deeper. So I love, like, yeah, I'm totally down with the word honor because it's about... I think what happens when you're listening is that you're allowing yourself to be influenced. And so what you're really doing is you're honoring the other person because you're saying, I'm letting you influence me. Totally. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's like we're equals, you know, I'm not just here listening. Most people, as you know, in negotiation, they're like, even when they're listening, they're like thinking about what they're going to say next because they're thinking about how they're going to influence the person versus actually in negotiation, I teach negotiation and I'm, quasi fanatical about the, the topic. I'm like a religious zealot when it comes to- I could have used all your help, but I was in sales. I would have made more money. Well, you know, it's just such an interesting, you know, topic because in order to create agreements that meet both parties' interests, you really need to listen because you need to understand why people want what they want, not just what do they want, because the only way you can make creative trade-offs is, you, is if you really listen. If you don't listen well, you can't, you, you're going to do worse for yourself in negotiation. Um, so that's kind of, you know what I do have to say, I think that I use these negotiation skills being a couples therapist. I think I use people go, what, what, what makes you a good couples therapist? I said, all my years as a salesperson. (laughs) I, I'm not surprised, you know, because conflict is all that negotiation. I'm not interested in using my theory and my psychological frame of reference to impose on people. You know, my first question is in a session, a, what do you want your relationship to look like long-term? And what are you willing and able to change? And what are you not yeah. willing and able to yeah. change to make that so? Yeah. I just want to get that out right yeah. now. Yeah. Because I don't want to focus on, if it's stuff that, if there's stuff that you know you do that you're not interested in changing or you know you never can, can we just get honest about yeah. that in the first session so we can move it along yeah. and focus on the stuff <laughs> that is I'm going to be a patient of yours. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I do want to <laughs> say that uh, that's exactly what we talk about when it comes to tight loose conflict. And I'm really be curious for us to have an offline discussion around the tight loose conflicts that you see in your practice. Because actually, I think it's also, the, the cool thing about it is that is recognizing when it's tight loose is a source of conflict. Todd and I, who he's a lawyer, he leans tight. Uh, I'm a New Yorker and I'm an academic, I lean loose. And, and we just try to see, well, where can we trade off? Like, what are, you, what are the trade-offs? Like, where do you absolutely need to be tight in this household? And where, where can you give up a little bit of your tightness? And likewise for me, like, Loose, like, wait, where can I tighten up? But where's my, like, no, like, compromise domains? And actually, then we talk about with the girls. So I have two teenage girls. Poor things. How old are they? Uh, Jeanette is my oldest. She's 20. And Hannah is 17. And they also bury on tight loose. And they're always cracking up about it. But they're, you know, we talk about it with them. Like, these are the domains we've agreed on that we need to be tight. And these are the domains that we can be loose. But it also changes over time when you have kids. And it's a little bit cheesy. Oh, Michelle, we, we, there's a research project we need to do. Yeah. I can tell you exactly what it is. Let's do it. It's about household chores because yeah. always, I mean, I, I spend more time and people spend more money coming in to see me yeah. 
to navigate how they manage their house together. Yeah. yeah. And there's always one partner that's tight yep. and the other one that's loose. And then on top of that, because they're attachment objects to one another, the fact the loose partner can't become more tight and the tight partner yeah. can't become loose, it now plays out in the currency of love. So it means that you don't love me. Yeah. Um, that's so, that's so tragic. Because, you know, it's also, you could step back and say, wait, maybe it's the reason why, you know, rules matter to this person or rules don't matter to this person. And then let's prioritize. Like all win-win negotiations are like, what's your priority domains? And, and for example, Todd, you know, he just, I, told, I mentioned he's horrified how I load the dishwasher. I mean, that's a great unobtrusive test if you're tired or loose. I mean, <laughs> I'm a scientist, so I shouldn't be saying this, but he's just like, what do you think? What is wrong with you? And inevitably, he just kind of laughs at it. He's like, all right, I'm not, this is, that, that's okay. Like, I'm not going to legislate tightness in this domain. But there's other domains that, you know, he will think we need to have some tightness in, like being punctual and things like that. And, you know, there's other things that I've given up on or, or insisted on looseness about. So, you know, I think there's, there's even like with the kids, we're like, you know what, you know, we need to be tight on like you studying hard, you being respectful in the household. But you know what, we're going to give looseness on your bedtime and your curfew and, you know, and your how messy you are. I mean, Todd, Todd's very upset. He lost that negotiation. The, the place is a mess. Like to your point about household, like just a mess. I'm just like, close your door. I don't want to see it. But, you know, he's like, okay, I'll live with this. Like, but, you know, I think it's exciting to think about it as how do you negotiate these issues? And I really would love to write something together on this because, you know, most of us get married. We have absolutely no idea, you know, not only just on household chores, but on parenting. Like if you're, you know, you know, I, I was like, you're going to let me take this kid home from the hospital. Like what's wrong with you people <laughs> when I had Jeanette, but more than you trust me with this person, you think I'm going to keep this, this little bean alive. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, <laughs> we should have a license, like a driver's license, you know, we should have a parenting license, but more it's, it's like, we didn't really know like at all, like what are our styles on tight loose when it comes to parenting or finances? I'm sure you get a lot of conflict over that. A lot. Even my brothers and I, like I'm very close to my brothers and, you know, we're always kind of talking about, especially during COVID, it was a big deal. Like, you know, one brother tighter than the other on, he, he's a medical doctor. Like he's, in a different context than the other who's more in creative ad sales and, and internet stuff. And on vacations, this tight loose distinction really also mean, you know, we, we get so irritated with each other, you know, structure versus spontaneity. And then finally, like, all right, let's kind of figure out again, how do we negotiate it? Like, what can you give up on this? So I'm, I'm just telling you, you, if you want to leave another legacy behind some, some research on this, cause you know, what's cool about the way that you're, you're researching and studying this is that it's non-pathologizing. I think that most of the psychological literature mm -hmm. that comes out of sort of interpersonal psychology is extremely shaming to couples. Yeah. And I'm not interested in any theories that shame couples. It's not how I work. Um, so yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's fa I mean, the, the language is under-functioning and over-functioning. Mm. I like it. Is the language that's used. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's very shaming. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really like a deficiency model. Like, right. That's it's a deficiency yeah. model. Like, a what's problem. wrong? Yeah. Versus, yeah. Versus what your point is, is what's right? Like, and what can you tolerate? And how can you empathize and meet? In the I just spoke with Kate Mulligan yesterday, which is probably someone I need to introduce you to. She's heading up an organization for the entire Canadian government on social prescribing. And she said, we're trying to change. The phrase from what's the matter with you to what matters oh, to you. I love it. And I just love.
So we have to credit Kate Mulligan. I'm not interested in stealing people's work, but I think it's such a beautiful phrase. What matters to you rather than what's the matter with you? And And that also opens up. Your work gives people the context to do that. I love it because it also opens up like, why does that matter to you? Like, you know, I think that's like getting to the why is always like so profound. I think that's what your research does. I think, I don't think that any other research besides culture research can ask the why. Because I think the study of culture allows you to go deeper and ask that why question. Yeah. I remember I was working with a couple once and I, and I do ask these questions because the, the, the wife was really messy and she didn't seem to have a problem with it. And the husband was, I said, can you tell me about your families? And she was one of 13 kids yeah. of a really connected family, spent lots of time together, but they also were 13 kids in a four bedroom yeah. house. I'm like, you can't keep a house clean with 13 kids. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm sitting here with it. He's comfortable with messy because it's not possible, you know, and he was an only child. Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, there's, oh there's a lot Oh my gosh, context. there's so much there that you could see why did they, why, why does this matter to them or not matter to them? Like what makes sense about it? Um, we've been also studying, you know, context like social class with the same kind of view of like, wait, like how do we understand mm. people from like, you know, the working class that actually our data tends to veer tighter than the upper class. Oh, really? Uh, and in large, in large part, you know, I'm not, and we're not talking about extremely poor areas where there's a lot of normlessness, but just like working class, we're trying to avoid poverty, trying to avoid what sociologists call hard living. You know, their parents are like, you know, rules matter. Rules are good. When we ask people from the working class and the upper class to tell us what they think about rules, if I just say, tell us, you know, what, you know, what comes to mind when I say, you know, violate the rules or abide by the rules. The working class parents are like, they're good, like structure, good, like critical. They're critical to keep kids off the street. They're critical to help kids deal in dangerous occupations. Whereas upper class parents, um, they are much more like, oh, you know, rules are kind of a nuisance. You look at mainstream American culture, there's all sorts of books on break the rules and, you know, rules are bad. And, you know, it's really something that, you know, makes sense if you have the safety, if you have that you know, safety context and uh, that, you know, your parents have that they can help you if you violate the rules. If you don't, but then, you know, breaking the rules is dangerous. And, you know, we've been doing studies in this context too, to try to help people understand each other from different yeah. social classes. This is illuminating. I'm just drinking you in here. This is super cool. <laughs> I know we're near the end of time. So this isn't clearly not going to be the last conversation that you and I are going to have. Um, no, definitely not. I could change I'm the, coming to Heidelberg change. for one thing. Well, where is I already, <laughs> so I already I already told we discovered that Michelle likes German Riesling, which I do too, which I didn't tell Michelle that one of the things that I did to pay my way through graduate school is I worked in a fine dining restaurant. Although I was the cheat. You can I'm still friends with the chief sommelier from my former restaurant. And Ooh. I had to quit because I was studying more about wine than for my graduate program. I'm like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) I just paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for a graduate degree and I'm studying more on wine. Uh, So yes, but I live in the middle of vineyards. I told Michelle. Um, So jealous. So this is going to be the, this is going to be the first of hopefully in uh, many conversations, but I know that you're off to doing great things. You're newly West Coaster, I'll have to send you some place. What city are you living in, in California? In Palo Alto. Okay. Yeah, so right on campus. I'll have to tell you, your, your, your students are going to joke, but there is this great place. I'm going to say it on air. I'm going to give them a plug. It's called the Watercourse Way, where you can go rent private hot tubs, but it's not seedy and it's not that kind of place. I used uh-huh. to go there in the middle of the day when I was selling software 
And it's because <laughs> it was stressful. And we're talking, it looks like a five-star resort. So you can just go oh, rent wow. a tub for an hour. So if you're ever having a stressful day, you just go to Watercourseway for an hour. They have, my favorite room is room three that has the cold Ooh. plunge. <laughs> this is great. I like plunge. the details. <laughs> and the sauna and the hot tub in one room. So anyway, but I did say to you that we awesome. have this little tradition for um, how we end this conversation, which is that, you know, we had this crazy video go viral on Sidewalk Talk in 2018. It got viewed 10 million times. And so the project grew to 50 cities across 15 countries. So there's like 8,000 people that sit on sidewalks listening to strangers. And I'm going to hand off the mic to you and quit leading the conversation and let you talk directly to that. Oh, that's really, it's a great, great way to end. Also, I mean, I feel like we could have been related. Like maybe we are related. Maybe somehow, we are. But, um, you know, I'm going to give the advice that my, um, my hero uh, in the world gave me, which is Harry Triandis. So Harry, as I mentioned, he was, uh, he started the field of cross-cultural psychology. And I moved from New York to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, in the middle of nowhere to work with him. And he was this, he just passed away a couple of years ago he, at the age 93. And he's my hero because he was this gigantic, you know, kind of intellect, but he was also just laughing all the time and just didn't take himself, you know, too seriously. And that was his advice to me. He had this tripartite advice for his students. And I try to really live this. One was be passionate about what you do. Uh, for many of us, that's not too hard. Um, the second piece of advice was don't be afraid to be controversial. I mean, that's a little more difficult, takes a lot of courage. But the third thing, probably the most difficult thing he said is don't take yourself too seriously. I, I think he was a little Buddhist, you know, um, and I'm trying to practice that, you know, and I, and I think that advice has always really, I felt just, he lives part of me every day through that advice. Uh, and he was just uh, such an influential person to me. It still does. It still is. The only last thing I'll say, if I can squeeze one little piece of advice. I, my father-in-law, my late father-in-law said something to me once that I was never really realized that I do, but I thought, you know, it's something I do try to do, which is to try to make the person you're talking to, and I think you do this, feel like they're the only person in the room, like that you're just kind of zeroing in on that person and you're just like, they're like just soaking in everything they're saying. And I guess that's what he thought I did. Like, and I didn't realize that. And I think part of me feels like that's a really good way to think I'm sure your people at Sidewalk are doing this. Like you're really just kind of like all in, all attention on that person. Like there's nothing else going on. And I think that that's received really well for people who feel like that they really matter. And you're hearing their story. I mean, you know, I'm not now preaching this to the choir, uh, but I was really amazed by that, that he noticed that. And I try to do that with my students and with my friends and my colleagues and yada, yada. Um, it's an ideal that I sort of try to practice. I feel really sweet the way we got to memorialize Harry and, and really honor him in this conversation. And that you also got to be honored because you got to share what someone who you really love and respect recognized about you, which is that you really make people feel special. And I concur because you've just been, you're kind of like this super smarty pants, wicked researcher who's like so accessible so thanks for Aww. living the values of your hero harry you've done harry proud thank you so much yeah. i really appreciate it and we'll stay in touch absolutely and everyone there's all kinds of links to where you can find out more about michelle's work she's written lots of books she's written lots of articles uh this isn't going to be the last you're going to hear from her because i'm pretty sure she's going to write a book about chores and marriage 
next. <laughs> the dishwasher test. <laughs> so check out the show notes. And thank you so much, Michelle. It was so great. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.